This is The Eco Experience, an environmental podcast that explores the earth we live in and what has become and is becoming of our environments today. Hello, and welcome to the first episode of The Eco Experience podcast. My name is Celine, and I'm from an environmental activist group called Sarah Eco Warriors based in Kuching, Sarah, Malaysia. We will be doing proper introductions as to who we are and what this podcast is about in the next episode because we actually live streamed the recording of this first episode on Facebook where our viewers ask questions which you will hear later in the conversation. This episode is in conjunction with International Mountain Day and Waisili Unified and we will be talking about mountains, mainly our mountains in Sarawak, our barrio highlands and Hosting this episode will be a friend and fellow conservationist, Ian Chin, and me. I would like to preface by saying that whatever we say in this podcast is based off on personal experience and opinions, and we are not speaking in representation of our Highland communities or speaking for them. And now, welcome to the first episode of the Eco Experience Podcast. Let's, let's get this going then. Anyways, welcome. Any viewers who are watching? Hi. From sun, No, I won't say sunny Kuching, but it's literally night and it's pouring rain, pouring <laughs> the dogs, cats and dogs outside. So yeah, I hope everyone's all right. I'm Ian Imchin and this is my co-host. I'm uh, Celine. Celine from Sarawak Eco Warriors and welcome to our first uh, live stream podcast. Today we're talking about tales from the mountains with our very very esteemed guests, uh, introducing Cynthia <laughs> Chin and of course uh, Liu Suetfan from Pera. Yeah, hi everybody. They, hi. Uh, Cynthia is local, she literally lives behind my house somewhere. And we're not related, although we have the same surname. Oh, no, 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 yeah, of course not. <laughs> we're not related. I just realized yeah. you have the same surname. Oh, come on, Celine, you're so slow. <laughs> but yeah, Cynthia, mm. probably the same weather as us right now in Kuching, literally thunderstorm going on. How about yeah. uh, Suetfan, how's Pera right now? Uh, it's been a bit warm. We've had a few weeks of heavy rain normal at the start of the year but uh, last couple of days has been a bit drier so we are grateful for a bit of sun yeah get the laundry out quickly <laughs> <laughs> before the the end of the the year weather that's right, right. yeah yeah it's it's really amazing how we're like one ocean apart and yet most similar it? weather Isn't right yeah. yeah but ours is much earlier as you can see we are like every day pouring already how about in Bukit Larut? Is it, how how was the things up there? Bukit Larut? Oh, I mean, Bukit Larut the is the... Country. I mean, for the benefit of people who are listening in and may not know, uh, mm. Bukit Larut is uh, not an isolated hill. It is actually uh, the southern tip of the Bintang Range. The Bintang Range is uh, in the northwestern corner of the peninsula. And it stretches from where we are in Taiping all the way up north to Thailand. So it's a, it's a fairly decent-sized range and uh, quite not very developed. So it's quite uh, pristine still. So it's it's pretty nice. Where we are is about almost 4,000 feet above sea level, which is the same height as uh, Barrio, actually. Barrio's plane is about 4,000 feet above sea level. So it's uh, not similar in any way, but about the same height. 
how about the weather let's say let's say if like, Taiping oh, is, the is, is rain, it's like hot down there you know though. about Taiping's rain right we are infamous uh, as the rain oh, really? and it's actually uh, Bukit Larut or Maxwell Hills is the wettest place in the peninsula Malaysia simply because of its geography the, the hills are located about just about 20 kilometers from the Straits of Malacca so we are very close to shoreline so you get this you remember your geography, wind blows uh, and then it gets pushed up the mountains and it forms these huge clouds almost every day. So where we are it, in a bungalow called the Nest, it is uh, very uh, cloudy and very, very misty. Uh, so it's quite romantic, uh, but some people feel that it's ghostly, you know. So, <laughs> so we always get asked whether there are any supernatural happenings. But it's a really kind of a cool place, uh, cool place. Looks very mystical rather than ghostly to me, honestly. Well, you know, because we are forest people, so we like it. But people who aren't really, you know, more urban-centric, uh, they find a little it a bit unsettling uh, to be in a place where the mist drifts in suddenly all hours of the day and night, you know? Yeah. I like it, yeah. No way. People are people find that ghostly. Oh have yeah, you, absolutely. You, people come up to you and just and they're gonna shock. All the time, Ian. Oh All yeah. The time. People need to get up, get up in the mountains more. You know. Well, but. I think we are all biased, you know, here because we are all forest. Oh kind, yeah, that's true. Right? That's so true. We right. we love it, you know. Yeah. No, yeah, I'm, I'm sure everyone agrees here, but the mountains are one of the best places to be, especially when it's really hot, right? Before we get all up into like the mountains and like the weather, um, so now you know like Sefan lives in, right now living in Berra and Larut Hills, and mm-hmm. Cynthia is in Kuching. So maybe uh, before we get into it, let's have both of you give like a more proper introduction so our viewers like know who you uh, are, what you do. <laughs> Yeah. Uh-huh. Okay, Cynthia, you first. Oh, sure. Okay. Hi, everyone. And welcome to, you know, this very first broadcast from Eco Warriors. So my name is Cynthia Chin, and I'm a born and bred Kuching person. Uh, I'm currently working as a conservation practitioner. I, I consider myself that I've been in this line for about 25 years, currently working with WWF Malaysia. And... Um, I guess I'm here sharing about Tales from the Mountains because uh, I had the privilege of working for many years in the upper reaches of the Baram River uh, in, here in Sarawak, in Miri Division. And um, I had the privilege of you know, being up in the mountains and working there. And in fact, met Swetfan while we were both kind of gallivanting about up there. Um, yeah. Currently, I'm very much sort of lowland, lowland inhabitant right now, uh, but I do coordinate still some projects that occur up in the highlands. And, you know, this is just sort of like my perspective as a townie from Kuching, being blessed with that opportunity to work in one of the most beautiful places in Sarawak. 
Well, I'm sure Benfield is quite a heel also, like you can't really. <laughs> well, I think very, very glad to be staying <laughs> in this area because it is one of the more greener areas in Kuching. Right, you know, right. so it is still quite pleasant. But you know, when you have the opportunity to be up in the highlands and mm. you wake up to the sounds of gibbons singing, hornbills calling, uh, yes. and the it's mist sort of settling yeah. down through the forest canopy, that is just yeah. you know, money cannot buy. Mm. No. Mm. Yeah. I agree. Yeah, how about uh, Sweetfat? Let's, let's uh, talk oh. about your oh. adventures. I have a long and checkered existence. Uh, but um, oh dear. in the last, I'll just start from the last seven, eight years. Uh, you know, um, I was I used to uh, work in WWF many years ago. So I'm quite biased towards conservation and interest in nature. But uh, I've been a writer for about... Uh, 15 years now, you know, full time, uh, I gave up my job and uh, became a writer. And uh, I actually moved to Barrio in 2013. Uh, my husband is Kalabit. And uh, I was living a dream life in Petaling Jaya, you know, Section 5. I think Cynthia has been there. Leafy suburb, nice setting for writing, you know, with three dogs. Wow. Well, not, seemed like a perfect existence, right? So I uprooted myself and went to Barrio and lived there. And uh, I was very naive. Uh, I thought that it would be a place where I could fit in easily. But uh, culturally and everything else, it's, it's, uh, it's amazing. But it took me by surprise, uh, you know, and it's 99% Kalabit people. So they all speak Kalabit and uh, you know, I'm Chinese, uh, so I go there and it's, it's changed me uh, in many ways uh, um, in a very fundamental sort of way, you know, challenge every notion I've, I had all my life. But uh, about four years ago, five years ago, we did move back to Taiping because I wanted to write a book here. And then we we got the nest, you know, it's, it's a 133-year-old uh, bungalow that is uh, run by the Methodist Church. And they had, uh, they had leased it out to us. So we moved there and life was different again. So I'm very happy to talk a little bit about what I know. Uh, I, I think I'm still learning many things about the mountains. But it has been a remarkable experience. Uh, which That's why I've written a book about Barrio based on my journals, which will come out next year. So it talks about living there, you know, the different... I want aspects. a copy, please. <laughs> 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 I think yeah. for anyone that don't know, I think your book is called uh, Beguiled, Beguiled on Larut Hills, was it? That one is... Uh, I wrote a book about Bukit Larut, actually, and it's called right. Beguiled. That was uh, last uh, year. Beguiled. So uh, it's actually a, a book that uh, delves into a range of things, uh, the uh, geography, the history, the human stories of Larut Hills. But the main idea behind the book was to tell people highlands are special places and we should look after them. I mean, the subtext is, you know, slipped in at the end. But uh, also I wanted to record a place where, where it's unlikely that anyone will ever write a book about Larut Hills and explore different aspects of it. Began was written for that purpose. And I'm glad I did it, you know, when, when we lived up there after three years. Yeah. Oh, okay. 
Yeah, actually, I read a short synopsis on it, and it sounds like really interesting. And if you're sending one to Cynthia, my house isn't that far. I'll allow and get the postman to get one. You can send me. everything to me. I can distribute it to both Ian and Celine. They don't live that far away from yeah. me. But uh, you'd be surprised how many people doesn't know what Big Girl means. So coming from you... Oh, yeah. I, I think I'm, I'm kind of like... Uh, People, many people ask me why beguile. You know, it sounds, what well, can't even pronounce it, beguile or beguile or beguile. what is it? <laughs> but I think you know, I've always had the habit of uh, introducing or reintroducing words to people uh, because we always say we like something. Uh, we don't know how to articulate why we like something very well. You know, uh, so we have to learn a vocabulary. Uh, you know, yeah. And um, I think in, you know. Beguile, I chose the word beguile because beguile is, is an interesting word. It means to be enchanting, but also to be deceptive. And the book deals with both sides of nature where you have the storms and you have the sun, you know, that kind of dichotomy of life, you know, that dual. So beguile is enchanting, but there's also the deception because there are leeches, you know, out there. <laughs> literally, literally. At the mountain, in love with the mist, the leeches are coming onto you. So it is our existence. Uh, human existence has its dual nature. So sorry to go on about it, but it is a, it is a, it is a word that demands you to think. Uh, so that is why I call it beguile. Yeah. I, I I'm expecting to be bewitched and bewildered as well when I get the book. <laughs> bewitched? Yeah. If you, know, you are not. Well, I think I think people our age will know what that means. It's a song, actually. Yeah. Uh, yes. Uh, yes, I know that song. Mm-hmm. Not oh, be, a is a song. <laughs> no, Bigal uh, bewitched and bewildered. Oh, that oh, is it? Okay, I gotta check that out. Sounds like that's a lovely song. song. It's a jazz number. Yes. Very nice. All right. Uh, I guess uh, speaking of leech, I guess yeah, you could say that like, the leeches are something to bring you back out to earth. You know, it's like oh yes, in heaven. Then you get a leech and like oh yeah, I'm on this earth. <laughs> Same with these people. Yeah, it really freaks people out, no leeches, because no, no, when we yeah. had uh, when we lived in the nest in in Larut, uh, we had a lot of guests. We actually opened the house to, to as as a homestay, you know, so that people can share our experience of waking up in the morning and hearing gibbons and things. Like that. So a lot of people who came didn't realize they have to walk three hundred meters through the forest to get to our place. So okay. there are many leeches, you know, and because there are many wild boars and other mammals in the area, so sometimes when we are up there, we can hear people screaming before they arrive. Let's <laughs> start here, you know, darling, you know. <laughs> oh my God. I, I would love to come across wild boar and, and gibbons, you know, in a 300 meter walk along the forest. That's becoming quite hard to, to come across. It's amazing. Nowadays. It is. Uh, and I, I can't say enough, you know, to, to express how I feel about the place uh, and people who come there from children to very o- much older people, up to 90 years old, they live not the same anymore, you know? You, you, you get what I mean? There's no phone reception. It's very poor phone reception there. So people are forced to put down their phones mostly and just look around them and suddenly realize there's a lot <coughs> you know, out there. So actually for children, it's a wonderful place uh, because I was a child when I went there. 
you know, that was a long time ago, but I, it changed me uh, as a child to go up there and see how, how different a forest could be. Uh, and, and that experience, if you had one time in your life where you could just sit there and watch that mist drift by, I've seen people just literally mouth, you know, <laughs> in the, day, in the middle of the day when the sun is shining and there's this mist just drifting in. That moment alters your view of life. I see, I see. It, it does, it does. It makes you think how wondrous uh, is the universe. Uh, Mm, yeah, it does. Moving on to Cynthia, who has spent a lot of time in the Barrio Highlands, right? Um, what, um, what is it like, I, like working there? I think I started off spending a lot more time to the south, to the southernmost part of the Barrio range. Um, to the south of Barrio, there's a, a beautiful place called Pulong Tao. It's currently a national park. So when I started kind of like my professional life there, it was more to the southern tip of Pulong Tao. So um, that's where the upper reaches of the Baram River is. And, you know, for those who don't know, the Baram River is the longest river in the northern region. It flows all the way down from the highlands, um, down all the way to the sea in Niue. And um, when I, my, my first kind of... Um, life up there was actually mm -hmm. more, it was a Kalabit village called, um, gosh, uh, Long Beluan. And, uh, well, that seems such a lifetime away. Um, but <laughs> the, we, we were doing actually surveys together with the Penan people as well in that general area. Um, so I spent quite a bit of time with the Highland peoples, um, firstly with the Penan and then later on, a little bit of time with the um, Kalabits and the Lunbawang or Barrio and Bakalalan, and also some from Long Semado. Mm. So, you know, I, I'm, a, I'm a Kuching girl. I am born and bred here <laughs> and I studied overseas, but I came back because I love, I love being, being back here. So, you know, it's amazing how many people from town have never, ever gone and experienced nature as it, as it should be up there um, and and you know I, I can only speak as somebody who's who's visited and who spent quite a bit of time there but it was such an inspiration that basically it's um, it, it made me want to to etch something permanent uh, in, in, etch permanent memories into into my life in many ways you know um, the fact that uh, I've continued working in this field um, conservation in Sarawak, I'm very specific in that, that I pre would prefer to work here in Sarawak or in Borneo. Um, the fact that, you know, I I have all these tattoos that were, well, my first one was inspired by a lady from the, one of the smallest, actually, I think they are the smallest group right now, it's the Southern group, mm. uh, because he, hers was one of the first villages that I mm. visited by the name of Long Banga. And uh, she had, she, she was in, uh, uh, clearly an aristocrat because she had the tattoos up her legs and mm. all these uh, lines up there. And then I came back down and I said, wow, that was my, that, that's an inspiration. I'm, I'm basically going to uh, remember mm. that with my own leg tattoo, which is you. But um, when I first went up there, uh, my intention was to work with animals. I, I wanted to look into the biodiversity of this amazing place called Borneo. And you know, the thing is, 
those of us who come from Malaysia or come from Puching, I was like, ah, yeah, la, Sarawak, la, you know? um, But when, when you have an opportunity to be outside and people find out that, what? You're from Malaysia? You're from Malaysia in Borneo? There, there is this perception of such magic that they have that you kind of wonder, hey, wait a minute, what, what did I not notice about my own home, you know? So, you know, I went up there with the intention to look at, well, you know, I've heard all this thing about challenges to biodiversity and nature. We know that humanity needs, needs nature to survive, but they, at the same time, we're also losing it, right? So I went up there and I was, my intention was to do wildlife surveys. And I did, I did wildlife surveys. But what I did not realize was uh, how much collaboration and engagement that I would have with the people up there. And like Sweetfern, I think it changed my life because, you know, when I, when at that young age, yeah, when you're like early to mid twenties, you kind of have a perception of, okay, like, right, I'm an, an animal person. I'm not a people person, right? And, and what really changed for me was looking at living with the people there, whether they were Penan or Kalabits or Lunbawang, because in, in my team of, um, people who were helping me go into the forest. They were both Kalabi and Banan mixture of people. Uh, you, you kind of, suddenly you get whammy in the head going, wow, these people live here, you know, and you can't help but just notice and learn from them the, the, the differences in the perspectives. And I think one of the things was when I started going up to the highlands, to the mountains, there was no Facebook. There were Digital cameras were just coming into the market. There were no satellite phones for the likes of me at the time. No, there weren't any actually. So how do I get my message up there, right, to tell people that I'm coming? So, you know, I had basically after I got to know the villagers, every time I went up there, I had to go to Radio Television Malaysia and basically go to the Radio Kayan section and go, hi, I have a message for this village up there. Uh, and they would announce it over RTM and say, okay, uh, Mr. So-and-so from so-and-so village, the senior team is coming up on so-and-so date. Uh, please wait for her at the end of the logging road that is near the Upper Tuto River. You know, it's that kind of thing. And looking back now, right, I don't know how I even got there. How they even were able to wait for me at the right spot in the middle of the forest. You know, mm. or or even in in those days, there were small flights, small planes that flew into the villages. But to have someone you know wait for you at that airport, that little runway, that one strip, all right, in the middle of nowhere. Uh, but to have somebody wait for you there, when there's the only way is you have to put faith in RTM, give the message. All that was such a different world to me. Yeah, that's really like, wild. Yeah, very different from now. Now at least uh, you can ask somebody to climb up the hill a bit and try and get the signal from the from the handphone or try and WhatsApp. But it's still difficult now. It's still not that mm. easy. But in those days, there was no such option. So, mm. so it was like really wow. Like, um, and then and then I I had a friend uh, who was assisting me, and she was also a lady. So everywhere we walked there, people had already known that there was these two crazy women from Kuching going around wanting to do wildlife <laughs> surveys. And, and, and I, was, I was studying hunting patterns. I was looking at how people hunted as a lifestyle, which again was a completely new perspective for me because mm. they needed to hunt for their own subsistence. Mm. And 
We were doing surveys, we were weighing what they were hunting, we were looking at what they were hunting, we were studying that. And so there was these stories about these two women, these two young women walking around the upper barang asking people questions about hunting. So that was like completely weird. <laughs> weird city yeah. people, I guess. No, yeah. that's well. I mean, com- coming from up, I mean, uh, I'm, I could say like we, some of us were quite blessed because our professions really like allow us to go up there. Like, I mean, mm. I've also been there a few times and even with like handphones right now, it's still so tough to get people to look for you, you know, to, to try to get up there. And yeah, it's amazing to hear about how you did it back in the day, you know. Wow, that's crazy. To uh, interject this whole conversation, sorry Cynthia, um, but we have a question for Sifan from our viewer. Um, She asked, as an urbanite moving to live in the mountains, what are some of the challenges that you have had to overcome or are still dealing with and could a regular person make this transition as well? Okay, this is a good question. Um, are you talking about Barrio or Larut Hills? Because they are completely different scenarios. Yeah, yeah. Well, uh, let me talk about Barrio because I think that's that's a you know interesting sort of place uh, because there's a community there of hunter gatherers and they are also rice farming uh, you know so and they have been there for you know generations uh. so they have a very specific way of life. Uh that is uh, not what, should I say, the modern society would can comprehend easily, you know. So, um, I was not a hardcore urbanite, I must say. I always preferred uh, smaller settings. I was working in an environmental setting, so I enjoyed going out to the mountains and the hills, the forests, and meeting many communities that travel around Southeast Asia, going to rural communities. So, I had a predisposition for a place like, you know, a bit rural, uh, remote and rural. But when I moved to Barrio, it was not, it was a different universe, uh, you know, because it's not just the physical aspect. I think the cultural aspect is much deeper. There's something that you have to come to terms with and learn to deal with in a very, uh, you have to change yourself, you know, uh, alter your own way of dealing with things. So, for example, you have every cultural aspect was quite different. So, we have food, for example. You know? So, when you live in town, you are used to eating what you get from the markets. Usually, it's cultivated vegetables or farm animals, right? So, and then in Barrio, you have a completely different scenario. They are hunter gatherers, i.e., they gather jungle produce, they collect you know, uh, vegetables, uh, fruits, uh, and then you have a lot of game meat. So here I was uh, learning to cook wild boar, uh, samba deer, uh, barking deer, and occasionally coming to face-to-face with bear. And uh, Luckily for me, my husband Peter is not, uh, he doesn't eat grubs, you know, so I didn't have to deal with that so much, but it was all around you. So even your very basic Hey, I need to eat a uh, wonton bean now. It cannot, you can't, you can't. So you have to alter your own view of food. Another thing is that you, you see life being taken, where we are so used to going to a supermarket and buy a meat that is already clean and, you know, packed nicely for you. Here you have a live animal 
you have to kill it, you know, have to come to terms with that. So I had a lot to deal with uh, as a somebody coming from an urban setting. But what amazed me is the people there, you know, how they dealt with life. Uh, and I was overwhelmed by the grace they had dealing with their existence, you know, their, their ability to, to be stoic, uh, things that we see less and less of in our society. People are impatient, they can't wait, they, can't, they have no patience. And suddenly you are thrust into a society where people can display these qualities so easily, you know, as part of their life. So that taught me very well, you know, helped me to stay on and helped me to learn to respect and to earn, to have high regard for, for such a community. A lot of people in the urban setting somehow feel they are superior. Not all, but many people feel superior to people in remote settings. But I think after living several years there, I've come to appreciate the qualities that we have lost in our cities and in our towns. And uh, can an urbanite stay there? Yes, but it requires a lot of humor. It requires patience. It requires understanding. It requires you to play out the scenarios in your head, you know. So the first year when I was living in Barrio, I felt lost uh, most of the time. I felt even the, the language, although I couldn't speak Kalabit, I understood some. It was the non-verbal communication that I could not tap into. It was beyond me because I, I'm a Chinese coming from a setting that's quite different. We Chinese are very forthright, they say what they think. And then you have the Kalabit who are, you know, very contained, they are very quiet. They, but they understand each other's cues much better than I could. So you have to be patient and relearn your existence. Yeah. So, so, I just get, I just so get you there when you said that because there is a grace beyond words that that. Yes. Um, I think this. I'm going to go out on a limb and say that those people, like what you said about urbanites, kind of having that kind of perception about you know rural rural yeah, living people, yeah. yes. I think yes. that's very much a misconception that mm. you know we. The two of us here today could just say, "Can we correct that?" You know, uh, <laughs> because because you you are taking um, this culture, this entire different lifestyle, mm. and putting it in a completely different setting. So yes. you know, when we go over there, you know, we mm. you you it will be helpless. I mean, I during my first few months, first year there would not have been able to survive because everything that you needed for survival took so much more effort, right? Yes. But, yes, but right. then there is a joy in obtaining that. There's a joy in, a, in, in, the, in going about that business, you know what I mean? Yes. And similarly, when, when, a, when a rural living person comes over to a different setting in town, yes. of course, yes. that would be lost. And that is what most people yes. see because we are yes. here in town. So yes. it is a... Comp it's a clash of paradigms in that sense. And neither one is better than the other. It's just putting a different perspective into a different box kind of thing. And, and that's, I think, what was the, one of the most valuable things that, that I learned mm. as well when I was there. Mm. You know, like you could, you could be in that village setting, correct me if I'm wrong, you could be in that jungle setting, you know, I, I was in the village and then we actually met camp in the, in the forest as well. You could just sit there and just go, I don't know what to do. And you know, has beat me, opened my mouth like a little like a little bird, and you know, or you could just go out there and say, Show me what to do. 
and you fumble around, right? So uh, I think there's great value in that. And I think there's something that we are increasingly being deprived of in this day and age, you know? Mm. Yeah. yeah, I can just uh, openly tell people who, who, who says that, who thinks that's a period, like you go, you go and try, you go up there, you try there. <laughs> just, just stay for a couple of days. You see what we're talking about because in a lot of ways, time moves. I feel time moves very slowly there and it's so nice. It's very different. Yeah. yeah. But some people might find it challenging. I mean, you really have to shift gears, uh, you know, because things aren't done the same way. For example, you want to see someone, you don't fix an appointment. Uh, you just hope you bump into them at the market, you know? And correct, then you go correct. to the market and drink coffee and then are they around? You know, they're not here. Never mind, I'll come back tomorrow, you know? I'm from a setting where, oh, we fix the appointment. Yeah, I come and see you this day, this time, you know? Then you go there, everybody's like really cool about it, you know? Let's see when they show up, you know? When we buy meat, for example, uh, I mean, Peter doesn't hunt anymore, of course. So we, we buy wild boar. So one day I said, hey, can we go and buy some wild boar? Silly me. Okay. So we go and sit in the coffee shop, drink coffee, right? And then wait now, wait for the hunter to show up with the wild boar. Oh, you know, not, not coming today. Uh. Never mind, uh, we eat sardines. Uh. So, you know, you really let things happen. And, and sometimes... It's quite liberating to be able to to have that because that you need a certain kind of power to to let things be. Mm -hmm. And I think people who are very connected to the earth, like the Kalabit living there for generations, they have learned to sit in the longhouse and drink tea as the rain falls, uh, even as their paddy is ripening because the elements are kings. We are just pitiful little humans uh, who want the rain to stop right now. Yeah, it's very humbling um, if you think about it, right? Yeah. It just blew me away uh, when I began to realize how powerful these people are. Yeah, that's like we are speaking of like we are subjects to the elements. I think it also caused a lot of uh, cultural changes. Like one mm. one thing different about what we do down here, let's say drinking like, like alcohol up there, they actually do drink the alcohol with tea, you know, hot tea. That's something <laughs> I never heard of. So oh. <laughs> I could never get used to it, but I see why because the weather is so cold up there right so you, you're drinking with a cold beverage it's just just not not feasible, la, you know? <laughs> not feasible no yeah, hot, hot maggie just... noodles taste the best up in barrio oh damn that's right <laughs> like, liquor and tea you should try liquor and tea like whiskey and hot tea that is something they do up there and uh, i love it but uh speaking of like this kind of mountain culture like, have any either of you like in a similar situation as that you know like with me it's the hot tea and uh and whiskey it's a bit different oh it, it doesn't have to be a traditional type of culture like, maybe it's a day-to-day -day life is there an interesting aspect of life that you, you didn't expect to see but you, you see up there mm. um i think that Many occasions where I have been surprised, uh, you know, culturally, everything is different. Uh, food, conflict resolution, for example. Okay, mm. there are land issues. Uh, somebody has got into your land and planted something. Oh my gosh. You know. So outside, we will say, oh, we have to make a police report. There, there's two ways of dealing with it. Now, the, the old way would be conflict resolution through mediation. So let's say Cynthia has got into my land, but I can't go and tell her, hey, get off. So I meet Ian and say, Ian, can you just kindly tell Cynthia not to do that anymore? It's a very gentle sort of thing. Eh? So Ian will go to Cynthia and say, can you, you know, 
then Cynthia says, I'm not going to bother. I'm just going to carry on planting my whatever. Then I come back and I see, oh, she's still there. So I go and talk to the Banglu and say, or the Kotoa Kampong and say she's doing this. So it carries on for months, uh, maybe a long, long time. You go through several layers of conflict resolution through mediation or through third party. Eventually, it will come to a point where you can either make a police report or you can also go to the native courts uh, because they have their own laws. Mm, yeah, most of other Sarawak ethnic groups. Uh. But culturally, now you have the option, you know, where before you had to go to conflict resolution that way. And for a long time, I couldn't understand it. But then when you look at Barrio, which is a very remote, contained community, uh, you should not quarrel with your neighbour or say no. You know, Kalabit had never say no. They'll say later... It's because they cannot say words that cause conflict. You cannot quarrel with people overtly, you know. I learned this the hard way because, Peter, hey, how about you have some coffee now, later? Then 10 minutes later, I say, would you like some coffee? Maybe. But it took me a long time to understand that no, it meant no, you know. Oh. Uh, they don't use words of can cause conflict, uh. Because you still have to meet somebody at the coffee shop and drink coffee with them, right? Yeah. So you cannot get into quarrels and then most of them are related to each other. So when you look at it, uh, it is a very evolved culture, a community-based, close-knit culture which avoids conflict at any cost. Uh. But now things are changing. So the cultural shift is that people may go to court, people may go and sue each other. So increasingly, you can see that the conflicts may be resolved differently because they have gone to modern society, you know. So they know there's an option. So when you, you know, things like conflict resolution is quite interesting there, yeah. So this is an example of cultural shifts or so on. Wow, we yeah. should really, you know, try to practice that as well. I mean, restraint, yeah, a, a lot of restraint. Well, it will take a, quite a few generations before we can... I, we as a community can, or our great-grandchildren can show such restraint, I think. And this is where yeah, I think... You have to do it consciously, yeah, you know? Yeah. Mm. Also yeah. where the body language comes in as well, right? Because, you know, yes. you're later and maybe. <laughs> sometimes it's really later and maybe, but sometimes it's a no. So, yeah. The ability to speak and to speak well, ability to mediate with good solutions that will not cause conflict is a very highly regarded quality in the Kalabi culture, you know? That is very interesting, yeah. yeah. So you see how evolved the people are? When you look at that, you realise that they have actually evolved far beyond us. Uh, we are quarrelling overtly, demanding justice immediately, you know? So I, I learned to really respect I guess it's also depends about on circumstance as well, uh, since they are forced to do it in such a small community. But just the fact that it's like, you know, part of their cultural perspective mm. uh, is very powerful. Yeah, it's, it's very interesting powerful. that it's part of their roots. So, I mean, okay, moving on. I mean, Cynthia has been there. I mean, uh, Cynthia has been there more recently, I feel, right? Do you, do you think there's a bit more cultural changes now since that, uh, since you've been there the first few times and then right now? Oh, Yes, definitely. Actually, I started going there in the late 90s and went, went throughout the uh, early 2000s to the roughly to about 2009 or 2009 around there. 
So there definitely is quite a change. Um, I think, oh, there's so many things to talk about. For the first thing, right, the technological changes has also uh, driven some change in in the in the communities there because when I first started going up there there was a there was no cell phones uh, well not 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 no smartphones uh, there were no camera phones people didn't take videos of those proceedings and things it was from my perspective comparing like 1998 to now right it was a much more innocent time in that sense what struck me most when I was up with the um, Penan was because I was looking into the hunting, hunting the way they hunted, and they were using fairly traditional ways, spear and hunting dogs at the most, one old-fashioned shotgun, okay? There was this very strong sense of community in the sense that whatever they hunted, right? Mm. Usually they will go for the larger bodied animals, like your mm. bearded pig and all that. Yes. The moment they took it back, right, it was shared amongst you know, as many people as possible, as many families as possible. And, you know, even even the hunting dogs got some of the choice bits because, you know, they were good at what they do. And, you know, in more recent times, uh, what I do notice is that they, I think it's, it's a good thing uh, that people are more aware of an inkling of who they are as people and their rights. Uh, so they are, you know, you want to talk to us? Fine, let's have a dialogue. Let's, we need to have some uh, like prior information and consent. You know? I'm going to take photos and video of the proceedings. Do you have anything that, any black and white that we can have a look at? I want to have it minuted. Um, mm. And part of what I do professionally mm. is basically to encourage them to have some kind of ownership over that you know let's let's have some representation from your community and for whatever reasons you know it could be you, you might want to resolve conflict or whatever but let's have some kind of platform amongst yourselves a representation that is uh that represents the people hopefully and created by the people and selected by the people and i think that's one very big shift in what it was like before you know and i think i think that's also quite important with the way that land use is changing up in the mm. highlands because land is getting scarcer. We need the commodities to come in to make sure that the economy is healthy. So there is where do we find the balance? And I think the people up there really need to come in to that as well because they've been living there for generations. They're the ones that are still living there, you know. So whatever decisions in like how much of it should be economical, large-scale com commodities mm. for our economy, how much of it needs mm. to be forest retained, whether we realize it or not, we do very much depend on a healthy uh, ecology and integrated uh, ecology, which basically means your forest needs to be standing and healthy and with its full collage of biodiversity in it. I think we've shifted a little bit more towards that and the exposure to like knowing like, hey, wait a minute, there are other peoples like us that are also looking into this issue in other parts of the world and being more exposed to that kind of uh, scenarios mm -hmm. to, you know, having, wanting to have a say in the way that their, their land area, their forest area changes. So all this is very much multifaceted, very complicated. So I am seeing from a change of the simple times, oh yeah, let's go out to the jungle and count animals. Let's have our team there to, wait a minute, now we know what's going on. We know that there, there are certain areas that need to be used. There are certain areas that are our ancestral areas, for example. How do we meet in the middle? How do we mitigate any kind of conflict?
And because the way that they resolve conflict is so different to the way that we Taiwanese resolve conflict, there is a conflict within, within that. So <laughs> we need to move to a point where we are meeting each other eye to eye in the middle and not have that perspective of, yeah, I think rural people are a little bit simpler than, you know, like the, there's a disparity in the way that they are perceived. I think it needs to be balanced mm. up and, and to have that understanding coming from both sides. Yeah, okay, that's interesting. Okay, is this only for the, the Kalabi or the general orang ulu populace? Because I think there is a small perception from like the normal viewers. Lah, to We think that the Penans are actually still, most of us still think that the Penans are actually still very nomadic. Do they actually mm. even have this system right now? This is very interesting. Uh, they, yeah. they, most of them are not nomadic anymore. Most mm. of them, they stopped being completely nomadic. Semi-settled, I think, quite yeah. a few of them. Uh, one of uh, the last oh. nomadic Penang uh, groups came out in like the 90s. Okay, those are one of the last groups. Uh, they are semi-settled in the sense that they would have a village. Then their villages are very fluid because, you know, their families everywhere. So sometimes a family or a few families from this village will move across to the mm-hmm. other village or they will split and become more villages. But they do spend a period of time in the forest doing their hunting gathering. They are also very big, fully settled Penan villages as well. So there's a mix. But I honestly don't think they are fully nomadic ones anymore. Uh, what was interesting was when I first went into the forest uh, up in the Ulubaram, one of my guides was this real expert in the forest and he was a Penan and he was born in the forest actually. So when I met him, I had no idea whether he was vaccinated or anything. So there was a bit of a worry that I might pass him something. But I think he was born in the forest and then um, he grew up in the village. But you can see for him, he's got his foot on both sides, on both boats, you know. So he's familiar with the forest. He really loves it there. He, he knows by the sound of the, the bird or whatever what's going on there, uh, whether it's female or male even sometimes. And he spends time in the village as well. So he's home on bo- in both worlds. Uh, but I don't think that there is any more Penans that, that are truly nomadic. Yeah. Near Barrio, there is a settlement of Penans. And because we live very close to them, so they walk past our house quite often. And uh, oh, okay. during the time I lived there, we had quite a few Penans come and visit us. And I realised culturally, they are also quite unique because they are entirely forest people. Now, in Sarawak, there's a land law written in 1954 based on the Maori law. And the law says that in order to claim land, you have to demonstrate land use of some sort, like a burial or planting before 1958. And that kind of casts the Penang into a conundrum because the Penangs are nomadic, you know, before they leave no trace of settlement. When you talk to a Penang, they say we've been here for generations, but we have no proof. And then you talk to the Kalabi, they say we have proof. We planted this, we settled this. Oh. So that what happens in the areas like Inia Baru is that this overlapping sort of thing will cause some degree of conflict between the groups. The Kalabit in uh, Long Lelang, they talk about the Penan in a certain way. So it, it, this is our cultural like conflicts that occur because the law somehow has not included the nomadic people in the claiming of land, you know. And uh, it continues to frustrate people uh, actually when in their relationships with each other. So 
you find that uh, the Penansa are remarkable peoples. They, they have such knowledge of the forest that we can only imagine, uh, you know, in our wildest dreams. Uh. But, uh, you know, in modern society, in, against the law, they don't seem to have their rights, uh, you know, which yeah. is quite sad, actually. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah absolutely. Mm. So Bruno Manser was in Barrio. He was in all these places and he wanted a different world for the Penansa. So he, you know the story. So that, that clears up the air a bit for the viewers, hopefully, about how the Penans are, you know. They are great people, actually. I met a few and then most of them can speak multiple languages. It's, it's quite amazing because they travel a lot. Yeah. Mm, yes. Still, there's still a mystery to a lot of people. So yes, thank you guys yes. for clearing this up. Uh, all right. So based on, let's say, the communities, I've noticed that uh, the Orang Ulu, they are, they are more outgoing, don't you think, than some of the lower land locals. Because, <laughs> I mean, I, what do you mean? <laughs> I mean, okay. For example, in my line of work, I do a lot of social surveys. I go around the okay. company and mm. talk to everybody. The, the lower land people, uh, they keep their ladies in the room. When they the, the the guy will come up, the guy will come up. Yeah, talk about <laughs> and then we do our we do our I'll do my surveys with the guy. Usually it's with the guy. But in the Highlands, I when I'm doing it, right? Oh, the lady will just come up. Yeah, what can I help you? So there's a big difference. So do you think there is a how is it like? Are they like? I mean, okay, based on my own experience, I was actually taken aback when I went there and discovered that women occupy a fairly uh, powerful position in society. Now, they are not overt about it, but uh, the, the way they regard women is because the women do a lot of the physical work, you know. They plant the rice, they, they look after the family, they cook, they collect water, they carry water for long distances. So they are part of this uh, structure in society where the women are physically involved uh, with the upbringing of their families and the way society runs. Uh. So my mother-in-law... She has a name like Dok Ila, which means to be wise, you know, to have wisdom. It's very often the traditional Chinese ladies' names or girls' names refer to chastity or beauty or, you know, some sort of uh, feminine quality. Uh. But there they re actually respect women to the point that they give them names which I've heard are uh, without obstacles, you know, incomparable. You know, these are superlatives uh, that they refer in their names to the women. So it's indicative of a society where women are regarded quite highly, you know, I think. And uh, although they take a backseat to the men because of society's uh, norms, it does not mean they are not powerful. Uh. And uh, in my time there, uh, the last uh, three years that I lived there, I find that a woman who is capable is admired. A woman who is educated is admired. So there are no uh, boundaries for them, you know. They can reach as far as they want. So the Kalabit, among the Kalabit, there are many educated women. And many of the women who are educated, they actually move away from the society. They intermarry quite quickly. And a lot of the Kalabit men end up marrying women who are outside the community. So the assimilation rate is really high. And the women uh, are not afraid to speak to you, Ian, when you go there. You talk to them, they just come to you. They don't shy away and say, don't take my picture or don't. Yeah, I so that it is uh, different from other societies like the Orang Asli in Peninsula, where the women hide away. You know, if you take out your camera, they all run away. 
they disappear oh. into the forest. Yeah, I've seen this. Uh, so it is a uh, evolved society, despite the fact they are remote, very evolved. Yeah, I think one of the most unique things, and it's specific to the Kalabit community, is the name changing culture that they have. Mm. That they don't change their names. Uh, yes. when events of significance happen in their life. So, mm. you know, and it is this name changing is for both male and female. So, yes. you know, the girl might start off being called Bulan or something that is slightly more feminine, but as she goes, as she experiences life and different things, events, big events happen for her and, you know, with the couple or whatever, um, the name changing then reflects a ah. new name of significance for yes for them and and that is one really really unique character in that culture that you don't get in in other other cultures that i know of in sarawak i, I think that um like should say the women generally my experience with other cultures in slightly lower lands is that what i notice being maybe as a woman i get to also speak with some of the women in there is that like Swiffens says they're not over it. They they always let the men take the take the front seat, you know, and do it. But a lot of the decision making behind closed doors, the women will have a really big say in it. But the main difference with a lot of the people of the up highlands is that the education level, the the naming and all that is very much reflective of their station in life and then their station as reflected by their experience in life. So that's really unique for that culture. Mm. Yeah, you know, the, the Kalabit people are rated as one of the most progressive communities because they are a small community with a high number of graduates, whether it's diploma or degree. Now, that's rather interesting, right? So when I lived there, I spoke to a lady who was the first uh, graduate in the community and she became a principal in one of the schools in Syrian before she retired. So I asked her, Connie, can I ask you a question? Why are the Kalabit smarter than other people? Uh? They seem to be able to progress faster than other ethnic groups. Uh? They are more prolific. Uh? She said to me something really interesting. She said, you know, the more remote you are, you just want to get out. <laughs> Education is wow. a way to go out. So they were so remote, you know, they have to walk one month to Marudi to get somewhere. Yeah. In this generation, uh, they have this drive to reach out because they are so far away from everyone else, you know. So I thought that was an interesting comment. It's very... Speaking of um, getting education, right, and moving mm. out of the highlands into, like, more urban areas, right, um, what do you think about the situation of urban migration or, like, the loss of culture and tradition in the younger generations up in, like, Barrio or maybe Larut? The, the loss of cultural... Uh, yeah, because you're, you're moving out so much intermarriage, you're mixing around with a lot more other people. So, of course, there's bound to be a bit of... Yeah, that's, that's something that a lot of people worry about. Uh, the loss of mm. culture, the loss of language, the loss of traditional... Uh, in Barrio, there are a couple of things that influence the change of cultural traditions uh, quite strongly. One of them was a conversion to Christianity, actually, which happened somewhere around the 40s. So religion changed their perception. They discarded a lot of their traditional beliefs, which were animistic and rooted in the natural world, you know, because it uh, contradicts the faith, right? Then education happened. 
and basically education came in the 60s but in earlier times uh, Tom Harrison initiated the early education uh, he brought in a man called Paul Kohan who's Indonesian paid him from his own pocket for one year and he began teaching the people so these are the things that altered early culture of the Kalabic people and then once they have education they leave right after form 3 you have to go to Miri after Miri you may go to Kuching or you may go overseas so a lot of that start to happen. But you know, when it's interesting when we look at a culture, I say that because I'm Chinese who doesn't wear a chongsam, who can't speak Mandarin, I'm a banana because I was raised in a Methodist school. So we ourselves have lost our Chinese-ness in many ways. So when you look at a society like the Kalabit, their evolution is so fast, you know. From the Peter's father's generation, my husband, who never went to school and was illiterate, basically, but did very well as a hunter-gatherer. Uh, they have now leapt into the modern society. Uh, so the loss is inevitable. But at the same time, I wonder whether we should say it's loss. Uh, I think it's uh, evolution of sorts uh, when, when society is exposed. Uh. I was going to say that, that you know, um, how, do we, how, how should we perceive this? Mm. You know, for one thing... You know, it is impossible to put a culture in a bubble and have it stay there indefinitely. Yes, so it's inevitable that some kind of change is going to happen, just as, you know. Uh, so Sufan is a banana who doesn't speak Mandarin, okay? <laughs> I'm a Mandarin speaking. I can read, write and speak Mandarin, but I'm still a banana. Okay, and how did that happen? Then we might we'll talk about that at different times. But the, the truth of the matter is, you know, I go to China, I can speak their language, but I'm, I'm not going to be culturally, culturally aligned to them, you know? Yeah. Uh, and to, to a certain extent, this is social evolution, this is cultural evolution. And I think there's no statutes of limitation to, to this kind of change. It's just how much change, how much of that, how much of my original culture do I bring with me? and reiterate it into my generation mm. and bring it forward, you know. So, so it's a question of, of that sort of thing. And, um, you know, that, like what Sufan has said, a lot of um, Kalabits have uh, intermarried outside the communities and all that. And it so happened that my brother-in-law is Kalabit. And uh, I can tell you, you know, why my niece is multicultural, you know, mm. she doesn't really speak Mandarin, but, you know, she knows her Kalabit background. But for her, I wouldn't say that she's fluent in Kalabit, you know. <laughs> uh, having said that, that, there's a generation like that. But having said that, there are also generations who have come back from overseas and they have Kalabit uh, in them, come back and made it a point to relearn their culture and spend time and all that. And where this is going to bring them is, you know, it's like a melding of where this generation is going to how they're going to meld it together and bring it forward. And that's going to be something that's really interesting mm. to see. Yeah. I agree, I agree. But it definitely shouldn't be lost. Maybe maybe in terms of like just knowing knowing that how it was should be enough. We don't yeah, have to practice yeah. it, right? I think the impetus to conserve culture should come from within. Yeah. Because, you know, people like me going there, oh, you know, the language is going lost. The oral traditions are... You know, attrition. We try so hard to kind of hold on to everything and then realize that the people who feel the most are the people who are losing it. And it should come from within uh, that they understand. 
that they need to preserve some of that. I mean, you can do an academic study on the language and keep it in the British Museum is fine. But uh, the Kalabit themselves are moved to look after some of their language and ensure the children learn some Kalabit, you know, mm-hmm. whether they are mixed parentage or not. I think that is a responsibility that each each cultural group mm-hmm. should have for their own, not someone outside coming and say, hey, you should keep this intact, you should... You can do that, but if it's organically done and comes from a conviction of the people, it becomes much more profound and much more sustainable. Um, going back to the topic of women, I think mm. I, I do feel like women, their culture is also very prominent, right? Specifically for women. Um, how has the, how has their culture changed or how has like the traditions or... Um, their practices change specifically for women in the Highlands? Mm, yes, yes, there are many changes. I think it stems a lot from education. The women who are educated, uh, as I said, uh, many of them actually move away to live. A lot of the clubbed men marry the women who originated from Indonesia, uh, you know, in Barrio itself, but outside it. That's a mix. So the women have been liberated, if you can use that word, uh, to go out to the greater world and find different partners and learn to embrace different cultures. When they come back, it's, you know, it's, it's quite interesting. I've seen them come back during the food festival and they are beautiful women, the uh, Kalabi women. You know, uh, they are. And they're all sitting there talking Kalabi and they're eating grubs and tadpole soup, you know. So uh, you see... Well, I mean, if you go during the food festival, you will get... This is hunter-gatherer society, so... Ah, I see. Okay. Tadpole soup and snake meat and all kinds of... All these women, they probably live in Kuala Lumpur, maybe go to Bangsa, to shop or whatever, you know, in the latest places. They're all dressed beautifully, all made up. They're all eating this lovely food. You see how they still gravitate, like their native food, uh, they still want to eat that. So essentially, maybe inside part of them still nurture the, that sort of bond with the community. But because of education, their families are now living somewhere else. They live somewhere else. And uh, overly, they look quite different. But when they come back, they very happily yeah. eat the local food. They miss it, you know. So yeah, it, it's quite interesting observation, I thought. Would you say that, Sufren, that they are able to connect to those roots because they grew up there. Yeah. And their children who don't mostly would have grown up in in cities, in town or even overseas. Now, there would be an interesting observation again, I think, for for the future. Understand. You know, I think it's a lot to do with how the parents raise a child. You know, Mm -hmm. if if you have a a child who is born of Kalabit and Chinese parents, for example, if they take the child back, like I've seen some Kalabit married to Chinese, uh, they'll bring the child back for school holidays and let them live there for a month or two. They begin to speak to grandmother in Kalabit. They learn to go and, you know, look for, gather jungle vegetables. So if the parents were to do that, then the child has some experience that could link them back later in life. 
But if you are removed completely and, you know, uh, coming back is a very superficial uh, experience, of course, your bond is not, you know, forged. Uh, and maybe when you're much older, like a person like me, you start wondering about your roots, you may go back, but you may not uh, if you don't mm. have sort of inclination. So it, I think the parents have a role in ensuring that even if their child is of dual parentage, uh, to expose the kids uh, to, to the kind of life that they had before is quite important, you know. Mm. But tadpole soup. <laughs> Sorry, I'm <sorry. laughs> <laughs> caught up in the tadpole soup. I added no <laughs> I tried I'm it. wondering how you cook it. Is, what is it? Does it taste like bubble? Okay. Like, is it boba? Okay. Traditional kalabit food is very simple. You have to imagine a time when they had no cooking oil, but they had their own salt. So most of the really traditional food is boiled with a bit of salt. So the tadpoles, uh, these are not the ordinary tadpoles. I think they belong to a certain species. Uh, they don't look the same. So they just boil it in a soup with a bit of salt. I, I tried it because all these lovely ladies said to me, hey, Ganit, Kalabit name is Ganit. Ganit, you have to try this. So I took a spoonful and then I tried it. It's not too bad. Oh, <laughs> it's wow, a bit I crunchy. have to try that. Crunchy? No, because oh, it has a sauce. You know, it has probably got oh. some muscle and some stuff. So it's a bit like crunchy, you know. I've been there a few times. I've never tried. That's we must go during the food festival because at oh, that time, that is okay. when when the jungle produce is available. So, the food festival itself is a celebration of their culture through the mouth. It's a gastronomical <laughs> it's a hunter, celebration. It's a hunter-gatherer food yeah. festival, you know. So, so it's not that? like they would be having tadpole soup every day. Yeah, yeah. during that period, yeah. they would really okay. make it make it a point to draw up all mums and yes. grandmas traditional yes, recipes. Yes. Okay, so, okay, so when is this festival? July, last July. weekend of July. Yeah, this July. Year because of and you have to book your flights like a year ahead. Otherwise, you have to take a truck from Miri. It's fascinating. Okay, talk about cultural aspects. Uh, the food is completely different. Now, this is interesting because now in in Europe, people have gone back to foraging. And okay. So they have become gatherers, you know. We're you go backwards. to Sweden, you go to Norway, people look for their mushrooms, their hidden places for their garlic, mm. you know, their chives, wild vegetables and stuff. So you see how strange human beings are because we take ourselves so far away and go into a instant noodles and McDonald's. Then we migrate back to our roots. Uh. So if you go to first world countries, uh, I mean, New York or some, the people who are trendy or in or are aware have become foragers also, you know. They, that's why it is a cyclical thing. And um, they, they have lessons to teach us, you know. It's a very interesting thing because you there are many perspectives to it. We as a species are so resourceful. We wanted all sorts of convenience and we created that convenience. And we always go overboard and then we realise, oh no, this is not very healthy for us. And then some of the more enlightened go, oh, we need to go back to a few steps. <laughs> uh, and, and that's what ha- what's happening. Yeah. And, um, and in, in, in many ways, the current times that we're in right now, mm. you know, the fact that we're doing this online live and not mm. having like a face-to-face chat is because of a pandemic and, you know, human society has seen many pandemics before, but this is the first one in this age of Wi-Fi and internet and connectivity. And, and in, in many ways, I think going back to 
learning from the mountains and the people of the mountains, right? Whether they realize it or not, they have this semblance of, of a better balance with the world that they live in compared to us here. And, and you know, if you think about it, the pandemic that we're facing now, we are the cause of it, really. If you think about yeah. it. So I yeah. can speak, I can write a book on it. Uh, no, maybe not. Sufan can write a book on it. <laughs> but I think one of the most valuable things that I have learned, and I think when we conversation with Sufan as well, is we need to find some semblance of that balance back. Wh- whatever that looks like, I, I don't know, you know. But we need to like kind of rein in ourselves a little bit and go, well, what's really good for us here? When we let it go too far, this is what happens. And mm. do we really want to keep doing this again and again? Have we not learned from, you know... We never learn. We never learn from our past. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. yeah. And I think, you know, however evolved technologically we've become or we feel that we have evolved, emotionally, we're still, we're still there. We're still where we were, you know. So having that, that the smarts to, to come up with technology and make life simple for us, it's not that great if we are not emotionally or in terms of our EQ connected. And um, I think that's really what I feel was how the mountains inspired me, really. When you look back at first time I went was like end of 97, beginning 98, like it's been like 20 plus years. And you ask, what have we learned, right? We learned a lot, but then we need to get back to some semblance of balance because we've got the technology for everything right now. And, and we're still evolving that, but we need to get back to the fact that we still need the mountains to be there in their entirety, in ecologically intact along with everything else. And the people that have that very close relationship with, with that mountain, it, it needs to be there in whatever iteration that balance needs to be there. Mm, yeah, I believe you. Yeah, that's great. I agree as well, completely. Yeah, it's, um, yeah the balance is very important. Helping them get the infrastructure they need is definitely going to one way urbanize them in a certain sense, but preserving the culture and the tradition is also an important thing. So we have a question for Cynthia from a viewer. She asks, as a conservationist who works with the local community in sometimes very rural areas, have you come across any scary or dangerous situations which made you wish that you were back in the comfort and safety of your home? <laughs> oh, that, that's an interesting question. Good question. You know what? All the time that I was really in the forest and camping out there, I remember thinking this quite a few times. I said to myself, you know what? I think I'm actually safer here than on the street in town. So <laughs> I have a higher chance of getting run down by a car. I think um, the danger is not as what, you know, I thought it was going to be dangerous when I first went out there, but we have to change our perspective mm-hmm. a little bit. Mm-hmm. It's not about danger. It's about your level of comfort, you know. Mm-hmm. Are you comfortable walking through a forest where mm-hmm. there might be just... Uh, if you get a leech on you, what are you going to do? You know, eh, nothing. You know, I don't, I don't get bothered by leeches. Then, you know, you're sweating and you go on your hike and you're going, you're passing and passing after the 65-year-old uncle in front of you because he's so much fitter than you. And then you get to this sudden magical clearing up in the mountains and see you see this mist descending upon your completely perfect forest canopy, for example. And that, that you can find in Polong Tao. And you just go, Wow. You know, you feel you feel so insignificant in the wonders of nature, and never for not not for once did I ever feel like I would be in danger. I think that you know the the probably the most dangerous thing that ever happened to me was 
I got stung by a bee. But you know, people who are, oh, got snake or not, got, got bear or not, yeah, definitely have, but they're not easy to see. There are more than ones where I scared the bear, the bear scared me, and you know, we both ran in different directions. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah. Snakes, they probably run off first because they're more sensitive to the vibrations that your footsteps make. I'm more in danger for myself because I have very, very lousy balance when it comes to walking in the forest. So you have to cross like two sticks on a, like a small little ravine. Oh, uh, I hate that, yeah. Well, I, I just I just forget. I throw my dignity out the window. I sit on my on my backside and just squirt over. But honestly, I think that there is a lot of truth about how nature heals our soul. Because it is true that mentally speaking, we start to heal or we start to feel better about things when you're out there in nature. I don't know whether it's because I, I've been developing as like a, a jungle person or I actually do believe that when we connect, right, being out there is much better than being in a, a concrete jungle for mm. our own sanity. So going back to that question, I still believe that we, have, we face more dangers on a day-to-day life in town <laughs> because we learn to adapt. You learn to be comfortable with that situation where you're at. And what's wonderful is now with modern medicine, you bring stuff like antihistamine in case you get bitten, get stung by a bee and get allergic to it. So it's much, much safer, I feel. Having said that, I also want to qualify that with one thing. We all come from the city. We all come from town. When we go into that situation of hiking in the forest, going in there, we know that we always have the choice of coming back to the comfort of our city life. Maybe we miss the city or slightly more, less, less remote areas. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that coming in from that kind of perspective, that there is a difference. So I don't think I'll be, I'll, I'll, I'll be able to ever compare that, be able to fully understand that. But, but this is where I'm coming from. Like, no, I don't think it's dangerous at all. I, yeah. Wow, I agree. I agree with you completely. Yeah, I think we've gone through quite a bit today. There's so much more to say. Maybe next. Yeah, session. it is. Who yeah. knows, right? Who knows? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, but anyways, I, yeah, I think we have to wrap this up. I think we we all shared a lot, and I hope the viewers enjoyed as much as we did. I hope our guests enjoyed as well. All right. First of all, uh, make sure to check out. Miss Swetfan's uh, book, Beguiled on La Root Heels. Uh, if you can find it, I'm, I'll, I'll definitely look out for it. Just Google it. Next year, when the Barrio book comes out, I hope you all will read it. Okay, we, we want yeah. signed yeah. copies. We want signed copies. Yes, yes. Okay. Uh, journals that I kept for three years living there. Oh, we'll definitely need those. Mm. And I believe uh, Cynthia also co-authored a book, A Guide for Ecotourist Nature in the Heart of Borneo oh, as wow. well, right? Yeah, yeah. make sure yeah. the viewers check that out as well. And also, uh, uh, Barrio, Barrio Food Festival, end of July, oh, I hope you guys there. Tadpole uh, soup. <laughs> yes, yes. Tadpole soup really blew my mind. <laughs> my God. So fun. Can we yeah. pre-order your Barrio book? Wow. Is, okay. is pre-order Can... available? Not, not at the moment, but I have an option to pre-order maybe in January. I think maybe once the book travels out of the editor's hands and the texts are all ready, then I can pre- take the pre-orders. It's a bit mm-hmm. early now, so I, I, I don't want to disappoint people. Uh, you know. right. Let's end it on, on that note. <laughs> 
Thank you everyone for tuning in and thank you, thank uh, you News and Fun for coming in to join us. Thank Again, you, so you guys will be great. Pleasure. Lovely. Lovely talking to you guys.